Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Over the years, I've had a lot of long and interesting conversations with Adam Nagurney, the great New York Times correspondent, now the L.A. bureau chief, but for years, their chief political writer. I sat down with Adam on a recent visit to Los Angeles to assess his career, the state of journalism, and our politics. Adam Nagurney, good to see you out here in your new natural habitat, uh, (laughs) Los Angeles. I'm not used to that. You're a New York City guy. You're from New York. Yeah, I grew up from the suburbs of New York. Yeah, Westchester. I I mean, I was born in New York City, but I grew up in Westchester. And uh, I, there isn't a lot written about you, uh, I think by design, because you want everything else to be the story. That's the old reporter's instinct. I was about to say, why do you think that? But I guess it's the same. <laughs> exactly. There it is. You see, it's coming out already. Uh, but I, you know, I know that both you and one of your siblings, your brother, became journalists. And right. I was wondering if that had anything to do with your folks, or was it a coincidence that you both? Uh, no, I don't think it was a coincidence. I mean, my my father. Uh, my, first of all, my parents were both avid New York Times readers. You know, it was, we grew up in Times, you know, Westchester, so we grew up in a house where there was always a New York Times. My father was ahead of Quadrangle Books for a while. Quadrangle Books was the New York Times. Um, I see. So it was all, always part of the culture. And if you grew up in New York, like you know, here in LA, like you see Leonardo DiCaprio at a table, and everyone's like, "Oh my God!" You know, back in New York, if you saw Abe Rosenthal at a table, it'd be like a bigger celebrity sighting. So it was a big part of my life. So I think that's what we both ended up going in journalism. Eric and I both went to the same college, SUNY Purchase. We both worked for the school newspaper. We both worked. He worked for Newsday, I think, at one point. But we both worked for the Gannett Westchester newspapers, and now we both work for the Times. You um, uh, and you knew from the beginning that this is what you wanted to do? Yeah. So when um, I was a freshman in college, um, I somebody just came to me and said, do you want to write a story for the school paper? And I literally, it was called The Load, L-O-A-D. I didn't name it. Um, <laughs> it was a weekly. And, <laughs> and I don't think this is apocryphal. You could ask people who knew me then. Literally, like I knew from that moment, not only did I want to be a reporter, but did I want to work for the New York Times, and I wanted to be the national political reporter for the New York Times. And in fact, wow. some written proof of this, in that I wrote a letter to um, Adam Clymer, who you might yeah, know. Yeah, sure, I remember Adam. He was well. a political reporter of the New York Times in 1978 or whatever when I was in college. I said, Mr. Clymer, you know, you don't know me. I want your job. You have nothing to worry about, uh, but I'd love to come in there and talk to you and find out how I could get your job. And did he invite you in? So what? <laughs> yeah, so what happened is, 
He invites me in. You know, I'm like really nervous. I got a haircut. You know, I put on a tie. And so, you know, I showed up at the Times. I walked upstairs, uh, and he took me upstairs to the cafe. You know, I thought I figured. I figured. Have, for, you know, an important detail. He didn't call back or write back at first, which is fine. So I finally called, figuring like he'd have a phalanx of secretaries around him. And he picked up his phone himself. He said, "Oh yeah, of course, got your letter. Come on up." And I went up, and he had a coffee, cup of coffee with me for the New York Times, uh, the New York Times cafeteria. And, yeah. That is uh, that's such an important thing, you know. When I was uh, in college, I wrote for a paper called the Hyde Park Herald around the University of Chicago, mm-hmm. and I was doing uh, an investigative piece about uh, a race that I was involved in and some of the fundraising that was going on around it. And I called a guy named Chuck Newbauer, who was an investigative reporter at the Tribune, and it won several Pulitzer prizes and so on. Um, and Chuck gave me sort of advice on how to uh, how to do this piece, and um, we later became colleagues uh, on the Tribune and ended oh, up doing wow. some reporting together. But the, the I never forgot the kindness that he extended me, and um, you know it. it um, uh, I think that there is almost an obligation on the part of journalists to do that. But so you. You, uh, you had this experience. Right. Climber gave you. You looked around. You checked out what your future desk would be, and asked <laughs> right. him how long he'll be. And I was uh, too nervous. I, you know, I, I, mean, I really was looking around for like I don't know whether Scotty Reston was around at that point, but I was looking around for all these sort of big names. So yeah. I mean, it was a big. It, I was. It was a big deal to me. It really was. Yeah, yeah. And but then uh, no one starts. Uh, as the national political writer for the New York Times. So you worked for this Gannett paper right. in Westchester. Right. And what were you covering? So for the Reporter Dispatch, what happened, I was working at my school paper, The Load, I think I told you. The Load, yes. And uh, there was a, a guy there who was who knew, he worked for the Reporter Dispatch. His name was Byron Rimus. This and, was uh, the Gannett paper in Westchester. Yeah. yeah. And he sort of introduced me to the editor and got me a job there as a stringer. And I got paid by the story. And um, once I got out of college, I was just doing it all the time. And I was when you got the load off your mind. I got right? the load off my mind, yes. and I was getting paid. Uh, sorry, I was getting paid twenty five dollars a shot per story. And at a certain point, I was writing so many stories they made a decision like they should. You know, I was making more than the staff people, so they brought me in on staff. So, what kind of stories were you? So writing? zoning boards, and you know, you, I bet you do this too. You I come did, in the morning yeah. and you know, call the police departments to find out what's going on. Obituaries. You know, I would write, man. This won't shock you, but I'd write 75 inches on zoning board disputes in white plates. I really did. Like in in retrospect, I'm not sure what I was thinking, what, what were readers thinking, what were editors thinking, <laughs> but I loved it. You know, I just, I loved they it. They probably were happy they found a guy who uh, was stimulated by that. That's right. It could fill so, space. And then crime, we know you have, when you cover beats like that, you have your occasional, like great crime stories. And you know, I remember riding around on a, on a, on a snowplow in Putnam County where I worked for a while talking about what it was like clearing snow. And- so, you know, I wrote about politics when I was working for this paper, the Hyde Park Herald. I had a column. And when I got to the Tribune as an intern, the Chicago Tribune, the editor said, look, you know everything about Chicago politics, but you don't know about being being a reporter. And so we're going to put you on nights, you know, and I spent right. two and a half years on nights. It was the greatest education I ever had because there were, I was exposed to, you know, it was all very much sort of murder, mayhem, fires, trains falling off of the L tracks, planes mm-hmm. crashing and so on. But lots of human drama, lots of deadline writing, uh, lots of taking rewrite from the night police 
reporter who would describe these heinous scenes and always finish by saying foul play is suspected <laughs> which is <laughs> like the that. sense of humor of those guys always but uh see, well, the, you, the other thing you learn i bet you did too is like and it was a really important lesson like you're writing about people right so i mean it sounds schmaltzy corny but it's not so it's, it really made an impetus to get things wrong because get things right because when you're working on a small paper like that and you make a mistake say an obituary or yes. a pop check or something you you hear about it from real people, and I just thought that was a great way to learn that. Yeah, they. The, I was not involved with this, thank God. But the, there was a there was a legendary alderman in Chicago named Vito Marzullo, <laughs> and he uh, Vito uh, was quite ill, and uh, someone got a tip that he had died, and someone prematurely put in the paper that, and he he called outraged about this, just to personally assert that he was not dead. Uh, he did die sometime shortly after that, but uh, but no, but I mean, the but when you're not not when you're dealing with public officials, but oftentimes you're writing stories about some tragic event in people's lives, and yeah. you don't want to get those things, you don't want to get those things wrong. But you knew, even as you were doing that, as I knew that you wanted to cover politics. Why did you want to cover politics? Wow, I can't explain that. I just knew there's something about it. I mean, you know, from when I was a kid, I was reading political stories. I just loved it. I mean, I just loved it from the early days of politics in New York. And then my favorite stories of Westchester were like city council races. I don't know what it was. It was just something that really, really appealed to me. And I never lost interest in it. I just always found it more and more interesting. And you were still in Westchester when you covered uh, the election of someone who became uh, sort of a, a, a gigantic figure in American politics, Mario Cuomo. Were you, are, were you still yeah. there uh, for that? <clears throat> Excuse me. I was still there. Um, I covered his election. 1982, it would be. Yeah, I also feel, could I have covered his mayoral, I guess not. 77, yeah, 77. Maybe not, I remember, but I definitely did his governor's race. And I remember like, and this will, I mean, now it might not sound like much, but I remember being up in this suite with him when he got the results, because I always tried to get into the suite of the candidate, right? And you just really felt you were right inside. And then covering him when he... um, when he first became governor and dealing with his son Andrew, who's now the governor, as you as you well know, and um, and after I worked, you know, I got I was working for Gannett Westchester newspapers when I covered that race, and I think after that they sent me up to Albany, and then I got hired by Marshall Kramer at the Daily News to cover the Mario Cuomo. So tell me about Mario Cuomo. Uh, what were your impressions? You obviously covered his the 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 sweep of his political career from yeah. that moment to his. A sort of career-making speech at the Democratic convention in San Francisco, and then the flirtations with the presidential races uh, for succeeding uh, cycles. T- well, talk about him, because to me, he was a kind of larger-than-life figure in American politics. He was. So he was, like, I think I've covered three, and I think you know all of them, but three uh, candidates for president, or almost candidates for president, who really, like, I am so lucky to be covering this person. Mario Cuomo was one with all his flaws, which I'll talk about in a second. Bill Clinton was another, and the other was, of course, Barack Obama. Um, so with Clinton, you know, um, Cuomo was just a really brilliant guy. He was a brilliant speaker, intellectual, tortured character. You know, he never tortured was, in what way? Like he never, I, you know, he never really felt like. I, you always got the feeling with him that. He was never really sure he was good enough for what he was doing, and you know he'd have these long conversations with you. But the, the two things, I, one is he, he was just a great speaker, and he had a, an ability 
to walk into a room and frame an argument and grab an audience. And, you know, Bill Clinton had that ability. Barack Obama didn't even have that as well as Mario Cuomo did. And he was just a smart, substantial guy who I think really cared about stuff. But but the negative I was going to say is he also taught me. Like, no one taught me more than him how to be tough because he would like – he was notorious um, for if he didn't like coverage – Calling up, he'd call you, right? Yeah, so I remember calling him one morning. I don't know if this story is inappropriate or not. I had just been no, it's a podcast. Remember? Okay, no inappropriate okay. stories. Okay, so I just, uh, I just been so Marsha Kramer had been the bureau chief of the Daily News. They had sent her down to be the bureau chief down in New York City. Yeah. The editor at the time, Arthur Brown, said to me, "You know, we really don't know whether you're ready to be bureau chief. You got to prove yourself." So, right, that's the way you get a reporter. Right. So, um, I wrote some story about something. Who knows what? Right. And. Uh, um, the, suddenly, American was very sensitive about it. Like he might have commuted a sentence or something like that. Um, and the phone rings at 7 in the morning, and I pick it up. I'm sure I've been up till 2 in the morning the night, the night before. And it's like, I pick up the phone, I say, hello. And he, all I hear on the other phone is, you cut off my testicle. I'm like, what? <laughs> and he starts yelling at me about how unfair this story was and how I went out to destroy him. And I tried to help you, but I'm not going to help you now. And bam, hangs up the phone. So I call up two people. One is I call one person. Andrew Cuomo was his father's uh, sir gatekeeper. I mean, gatekeeper, he was the, he was right? his political alter ego, dollar a year, right? And, and enforcer. Enforcer is a better word. So I come up and I tell him this story because I'm really I'm scared, right? And he goes <laughs> and he goes, what? He said, cut off your testicle, testicle, not testicles. That's really bad. <laughs> oh my god. But then that night I had dinner with – I don't know if you ever knew him. Uh, the New York Times bureau chief at the time, his name was Jeff Schmaltz. And he's mm-hmm. not, I know the name. Uh, I didn't know him. Fantastic yeah. reporter. He's not with us anymore. And um, um, I, uh, so I shouldn't have told him the story because we were competitors. We were also friends. But I told him the story. And he looked at me and he goes, well, did you write down what he said? You're obviously going to report it. And the lesson that I learned is everything's on the record unless a politician says it's not. And I, ever since then I kept a, a – um, notebook by my bed, and I realized this isn't about me. It's about the politician. And you know, the next time something like that happened, I reported what he said. And when he yeah. did that with Jeff, I reported what he said. And that was a lesson that I learned. So I remember once Bill Clinton got really upset with me, and I, I actually don't remember what it was, um, and started yelling at me at some event, and started like really yelling. And I was just like, I just didn't get phased by it because I was so used to it. Yeah, yeah. No, I learned that at an early age too. In when Chicago. I was a city hall bureau chief in Chicago. Uh, and Jane Byrne was mayor, and she was very volatile and really angry because I was writing stories all the time about her serially uh, sort of abrogating her reform campaign promises. But um, it got very, it accelerated over time, and she would say things. And, you know, I always was very, you know, I reported the things that she said because it, 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 Actually went to her state of mind about <laughs> about things, but um, uh, uh, but getting back to Cuomo, you know, you said an interesting thing that I've always sort of wondered about, and I got to know him a little later in in, in his life. But you know, he he passed in '88 on the presidential race when he was incredibly hot after the '84 convention speech his for just to put it in context for younger listeners the speech that mario cuomo made at the 1984 democratic convention had the same sort of galvanizing impact that the speech barack obama made in boston in 2004 and immediately propelled him into the national scene but every time he had well it was really 88 and 92 he towed up to line and then didn't uh run and then Bill Clinton offered him a seat on the Supreme Court. He was a very 
you know, imagine the literature he would have produced on the Supreme Court. He's a former law professor, yep. and he didn't take that spot either. And you said you wondered whether he felt like he was up to it. Like, you know, there's this thing called a pot imposter syndrome that right, right. Various, many successful people feel that I don't want to be found out. You know, maybe I'm not as good as people think. You you feel like that was something that kind I of do. haunted him? I do. It was like, I'm not worthy of this. I'm not good enough to do. You know, people would speculate he doesn't want to be away from home. Or there was speculation, which I was I think was ridiculous, that he had some kind of crime, mob stuff, which I just think was, you know, slander. But um, I just think at the end of the day, he just thought he wasn't good enough. And he was sort of gnawed by this sort of insecurity feeling. I mean, right? part of his strength was he came from this immigrant family. Right. Um, he really really was this star who rose, you, you know, from this uh, very hard scrabble immigrant family. And, uh, you know, you could, you know, educated at St. John's, not Harvard. Yeah. And she never let you, and you couldn't get jobs at white shoe law firms because they wouldn't be, they weren't hiring Italian Americans. Right. Time. And he, so his attitude was like, it was not, it was justified, right? He had, had to deal with a lot of bad stuff. Yeah. And yet one of the towering political figures of our time. Uh, what about Andrew? What did you learn about him, and what do you see in him today? Um, I never, you know, Andrew was very talented, kind of logistical guy. And I, I never was quite as impressed with him uh, with his, as I was with his father. I mean, I, without taking anything away from him, I'm sure he's a fine governor. But I remember um, having one pretty intense exchange with him, and he also would call up to yell about stories. And I said to him, um, Andrew, you know what? You have all the bad qualities of your father and none of the good ones, which was a little <laughs> mean and overstated. But yeah, I mean, I don't how do you take really it? True. But I mean, do you think he's as good a governor or as good a speaker as his father was? Or? No, but I, I think uh, I think one of the most interesting a book you should write when you finish uh, your book, which we're going to speak about mm-hmm. the the your book about the New York Times, is fathers and sons in politics. I've I've made a study of this, you know, and it's really, really interesting to see. And what I find is that the sons are always both embracing and competing with uh, their fathers because it's impossible in, at the end of the day to win that. Uh, you know, you, 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 uh, you know, you're always being compared and right. that's a no. So then you try and create your own uh, legacy and oftentimes it's the opposite you know I, I, I expect if Andrew Cuomo does run for president in 2020 part of it will be that he'll be doing something his father that's what I think too right? never yeah. did yeah. you know but uh, you see it here in California too with Jerry Brown right and yes. his father oh yeah Brown, and I was yeah. in Chicago with Daly yeah. Rich Daly Rich and, and uh, Adlai Stevenson the third you know yeah. who was in certain ways as austere a politician as his father was known for his, uh, you know, f- for his, uh, his his speaking and his inspiration and so on. Adlai wasn't that kind of, Adlai III wasn't that kind of, but he was very steeped in policy and so on. It's it's really an interesting thing. So, you, uh, so you're working your way toward your ambition. Right. You're at the news. And then you took a turn at USA Today. Right. So USA Today hired me. There's an editor that... I knew from back at my job at at uh, at the at the Gazette papers. He's going on to run USA Today. Tom McNamara was his name, and he called me up and he said, "Do you want to be the political reporter here?" He goes, um, "I know you want to work at the New York Times. You told me that back in 1977. <laughs> it's really true." And then he goes, uh, "If you come to USA Today, 
Johnny Apple will read your stories. So Johnny Apple, the great uh, legendary New York Times political reporter. Because right. back in those days, right, there wasn't a web, and the only newspapers you could read when you're in Iowa or or, or New Hampshire was USA Today because it was everywhere, and the Wall Street Journal. You couldn't right. even get the Times. So that was his advice. So I was yeah. like, and he said, "I'll let you write longer, not as long as I would like." None of those semi-dialed zoning stories. Yes. Um, so I decided to do that. I, that was where I covered Clinton. Yeah, and uh, what was that experience like? Because Bill Clinton. We all remember was, uh, you know, there were Cuomo passed on the election and Dick Gephardt, who was uh, highly touted after 2008, having run, passed on that election. Bill Bradley uh, was mentioned and everybody passed uh, or not everybody, but many candidates passed on that election. And Bill but Bill Clinton and they passed because George H. W. Bush Seems looked so unbeatable, popular, right? Yeah, because yeah. after the war, after winning the war, after winning, winning the Gulf after, War, yeah. yeah. So, what were your impressions of Bill Clinton when you first encountered him? Um, I always, I'm talking about my earliest impressions. I always thought he was a terrific politician. I thought, you know, he could really get in there and, you know, sort of frame an argument and capture a room and an incredible energy. He'd run everyone else down. Like he'd start. He wouldn't start too early in the morning, as you know, but he would go till 11 o'clock at night and he just really enjoyed it and made a point of showing how much he really enjoyed it. And I think that you, know, you can tell when a politician knows that he's um, on a roll and you can tell when he knows when he's got an audience. And he just did. And I remember covering him on those bus trips, you know, the bus trips he did after the convention. Yes. And we'd roll into town, um, these small towns in, uh, in Illinois, along the Mississippi, and they'd be packed. Just the streets would be lined with people waiting to see him and Al Gore because they were traveling together. And he would just keep talking, as he would say, until the last dog died. And it yeah. was just, uh, and you know, back in those days, there weren't quite as many people covering as there are now. And the other really big difference was staff traveled with the candidates because your cell, your you know cell coverage wasn't so good. So you had you just felt like you had this front page, you know, this front row view of history going on that became more and more exciting as you realized because I think it became clear relatively early on, or at least it did to me, that Clinton was going to win, and it was just like the coolest, most exciting thing ever. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Adam Nagurney. What I recall about the early part of that Clinton campaign was the miraculous escape act that he pulled because uh, he ran into some real turbulence heading into the uh, into the uh, New Hampshire draft. primary. <clears throat> draft. Jennifer Flowers, I think. Jennifer yeah. Flowers, yeah. Uh, charges of uh, uh, extramarital right. relationships, right. Jennifer Flowers, right. and also that he had a- avoided the the draft in, uh, and plainly put it on politics, I guess, at the time. Right. Wrote a heartfelt letter to his draft commander saying, thank you for saving me. Yeah. You know, that's why, you know, if, if you know, if other people had gone in the ra- people who passed the race had gone in, he might have won. You know, he might not have. He, someone else might have pulled out ahead of him. You know? Yeah. But you were must have been up there in New Hampshire I when was. he was. Uh, uh, and that was a do or die kind of situation he had to prove in the new hampshire primary that he could survive what most you know it's fair to say the conventional wisdom is almost always wrong but the conventional wisdom was clinton was dead that he couldn't that he couldn't survive that it was really sort of his preternatural campaign skills that 
saved him. Right. And absolutely, people, voters love that, obviously, right? And he got that. People, voters like to see people fight, and he never gave up. I mean, that, that speech he gave about, I'm going to be fighting for you until the last dog died. Yeah, and he then, made it sort of, he made his own struggle uh, right. uh, a metaphor for their struggles. Exactly right. And people really responded to it. And then the other thing he did that was kind of crafty was, people forget this, he, um, he came in second, or you won't forget this, but he came in second place yes. in New Hampshire to Paul Songhans, right? And claimed to win. He claimed to win, the comeback kid. So everyone thinks he won New Hampshire. Well, he did, but he's, by all, by all, you know, he did. Yeah. So this, uh, the USA Today gig led to, uh, finally got you in the door at the times you didn't have to yeah. call Adam Clymer. And I had been writing letters. I mean, I had been writing letters. And there's some place in my box a letter from some editor saying, well, thank you for this, but... Um, there will never be a job here for you at the New York Times. And that was a real book. Really? Yeah, I don't actually remember who wrote it. I have some theories. I don't remember. And it was really so depressing. But um, you, should at least, you should at least acknowledge that person in your acknowledgement I will when you finish this right. book about the New York Times. <laughs> right, right. But, um, uh, but, uh, okay, just say one thing, though. Yeah. It just goes back to the Johnny Apple thing. So everything ties together here. So when Jeff Schmaltz died, right? I was one of the people giving a eulogy for him. And Johnny Apple comes up to me afterwards. It was at Chanterelle, a fancy restaurant in New York. It was just Times people, and he, Times and friends. And he comes up to me and he goes, we have an opening for a position in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, and you should be on the list of people like applying for it. I'm like, sure. So I went down to Washington next week or wherever I was. I was in Washington. And he took me to lunch. These are the old days, right? He took me to lunch at some fancy Italian place called Galileo, I believe. And mm-hmm. like, I think we had a bottle of wine and after dinner drinks. It, and then he went back to the bureau in his car. He had someone driving him from place to place. But that was what eventually led to me getting a job. And, um, and, and what were your first uh, assignments there? So I was so were hired, you like a general assignment reporter yeah, in the Washington Bureau? Yeah, I was hired Bureau? to do politics by, uh, by the Metro Bureau, Michael Reskies, and the Washington Bureau, which was Andy Rosenthal and, and uh, Johnny. So in my first year, I covered national politics with the understanding that I would go back to New York to become the Metro political reporter. Uh-huh. And my first year, I spent covering Bob Dole, which— you know, I know people who don't cover politics might think, oh, wow, that's really boring. No, it was great. I mean, he was he did lose and he was going to lose, but he was such a wonderful, great American character. It was just great to cover. And You know, um, I've been thinking a lot about this because, um, and people have heard me say this here before, my formative experiences in politics were about the same age with John F. Kennedy. You know, I was mm-hmm. like five-year-old when he came to Stuyvesant Town, where I grew up in New York. Yeah. And, uh, um, and you know, I went back and read the speech that he gave, and the speech was very much about sacrifice. It was very much about what our responsibilities were as Americans, and uh, it was the kind of speech that you wouldn't, you couldn't give today. But this was at a housing development that was built for returning war veterans, and you realize it had just fifteen years since the war ended, and there was this sense that you know that we kind of have to pull together against these challenges and grab these opportunities and you know so it's ask not what your country can do for you ask what you can do for your country that's a line you wouldn't necessarily hear in a political speech uh today but the reason i raise it is um there was something about that generation of americans and bob dole kind of exemplified that right 
Vietnam vet, excuse me, World War II veteran, war injury. No, he did, right? And I think that generation is kind of gone. It is gone, right? That sort of... Yeah. And it was I wonder from- if that's one of the reasons why the comedy in our politics has gone. I mean, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for it. But, you know, that World War generation, two generation, they all kind of contributed and many of them fought in the same foxholes together and um, came from different places, but came together around this big, worthy cause. There was this sense of national um, destiny and, you know, um, and values and mission. And um, so, you know, you wonder whether that... Now, maybe that can be recovered with some, some of these... You see a bunch of these Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans coming into politics now, but that wasn't as universal an experience as yeah. the World War II experience. And those was. wars were, you know, I mean, the World War II, like we were really trying to save the country and save the country from Nazis. And you don't, you don't have that same kind of unity about, or even understanding about the Iraq and Afghanistan. S- Steve Schmidt, who you know, mm-hmm. who worked for um, uh, John McCain, loves to tell the story about. Bob Dole at uh, uh, Dan Inouye's funeral, Dan Inouye being a Democratic senator Mm -hmm. from Hawaii who also lost an arm in in the war, and he and Dole rehabbed together. And they were from different parties, disagreed, uh, but Dole, uh, when he went to the funeral, he was in a wheelchair, and he had them stop, and he walked to the uh, casket and he paid his respects and he said uh, Danny wouldn't have wanted to see me in a wheelchair Uh, but um, it's a great story because it speaks to something larger than red states blue states the kind of uh, you know kind of politics that we are so used to uh, today and you know Dole I think it's some. He could be as partisan and as right, caustic right. as anyone, but there was also a level at which, you know, he saw this as service. I guess McCain's kind of like that too, right? I mean, like he could be as caustic and partisan and even cynical, but he does have that sort of level of. I look at politics as service, service that I believe it in, and, and yeah. do I think that is kind of absent now? Yeah, I do. Yeah, actually. yeah it's a shame. Yeah. So you went up to New York, right? Um, and what, how is that adjustment covering the politics of New York? Covering New York politics is really one of the best jobs. I think in the that's world. when you and I met. I at, think so because you yeah. were working for. Can I say this on the show? You can for, say, yeah, <laughs> for you, Ferrer, You're harder for, on him than I am. <laughs> I, uh, he lost, did he? He <laughs> did, yeah. But I remember Adam Nagurney. I remember sitting. Yeah, the first time I met you. Yeah, and you saying that you you were calling him twenty eight percent Freddie or something. We Can came I'm pretty sorry. close to winning that race. Yeah, and had that the race not happened on September eleventh, you uh, think you would have won that? I think he would have won outright that day. Okay. That's what every okay. all our okay. data suggested. Okay. So. Um, you know what they say about just, pretty close, right? <laughs> well, you know, I, you heard what I said about conventional wisdom, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. But what did you learn covering uh, New York politics? Um, what I learned covering New York politics, there's few things as brutal to cover as New York politics. Obviously, Jerusalem is probably one. Yeah. I'm not talking about wars. but Yeah, um, yeah but the politics. You yeah. just get pounded all the time, you know, by readers, by politicians. And, you know— I, um, I remember one of the candidates. I can't remember. Whether, I'm sorry for not whether it was your race or not. Ruth Messenger was running for mayor. She no. She was the. I think she was the race before, before that. Okay. Yeah. I'm, yeah. That's an age thing. Um, 
I learned a lot. So I was going on a lo- local TV, New York One, and I would go on these shows and start pontificating. And, you know, and the New York Times paid you to do it. So, right. And, um, but I didn't really know how to do TV. I think of this lesson all the time when I watch colleagues on TV, reporters, not you, but colleagues on TV. And when I'm at my desk one night and the phone rings and it's Ruth Messenger, right? And she goes, can I talk to you about something off the record? I'm like, not for a story. So I said, okay. She said, you know, I really think that you're, what you're saying about me evinces a bias and it's really not fair. And she starts reading me because she got transcripts of the stuff that she said from what I said on New York One. I listened to it and I thought, whoa, she's right. I definitely mm-hmm. crossed the line. So I really learned, like, you really got to learn about what you say and how important it is to be fair. And to, you can offer a point of view, but not an opinion when you're a reporter. And that's that's a, that's what I learned. And uh, uh, well, I, let, let me save the discussion about the times. There, you say you, you say you can offer um, uh, you you can offer analysis, but not an opinion. Yeah. Um, what do you think about where we are today? Because a lot of your colleagues tweet all the time i think you're on twitter as well on twitter yeah and so there's a really an open mic night uh on social media and uh, a temptation to uh and there's plenty to comment on now right do you, do you ever are you ever at all uncomfortable with uh what you read and do you find yourself saying you know what Maybe I better not hit send on that one. Something the president ought to practice more often, but that's another story. I I do invoke what I would now call the Ruth Messenger rule, which is I start thinking about like, is this something that I want to be saying on Twitter? Is this something I say on Twitter? Does it cross the line between offering hopefully an interesting point of view and offering an opinion? And do I think uh, I'm not going to name names, but do I think that reporters at various organizations sometimes go too far? Yeah, I do. I do. Do I think that that is hurtful uh, sometimes it is because i think it may as it is the public is having real questions about the veracity of newspapers media i'm using newspapers as a shorthand and the president is trying to feed it he's trying to feed that because i think it's in his interest to do that so i think it's not helpful when reporters cross the line now do i think they do that and it's not that often most reporters are totally fine like for maggie hayman it's great in my opinion yeah no do, she's a great she's great reporter. she's really got that she's got it down do i think people do it deliberately no but i think in this culture as you said people are trying to be fast they're trying to be first they're trying to get clicks and sometimes they don't think about going and and some sometimes the way to get clicks is to be a little more acerbic than you should Outrageous to lean in works, a little right? more when uh, than you uh, you know i i have to say i you know i'm I wonder sometimes if I were running a news organization, uh, if I would say to my reporters, not my columnists, but my reporters, you know, uh, you can you can tweet on facts that you're reporting. Do not tweet opinions. I think the Times, Dean Baquet, is try the executive editor is has tried to do that with some success. I think. I mean, they're really trying to. I don't use the word police because that's not a good word, but they're really trying to make sure that reporters do tweets that are sort of honest and helpful and don't quite cross that line. This is a difficult period. We're all going through this sort of like learning period, and it's a difficult period. Yeah. Well, I want to get to that uh, period in a second. Uh, you uh, you obviously you were named the national political writer in what two thousand two two thousand two. Yeah. Yeah, and so you covered um, you covered two. 
Uh, yeah, so I, I came, guess you covered three campaigns, right? You came I, out here into California I, after the 2012 campaign. Is that right? I came out. Well, I came, or, as chief political reporter, I covered two presidential campaigns. I went there in 2008. Right. So John Kerry versus Bush, which is fine, you know, and then um, Obama versus McCain, right? And um, that was a great race for all the obvious reasons that you know. It was a really historic race, and I remember writing this story the night that Barack Obama won and saw the. I mean, this will sound like an ego thing, so forgive me, but the big front page headline saying Obama, my name yeah, is Yeah, no, I, listen, as an old reporter, I, I, right? I wrote the story when Harold Washington got elected the first African-American mayor of Chicago. It's a huge deal, right? And I, yeah, treasure that headline, you know, that story with my byline on it. It's in my, you'll see a copy of it in my office, and there's two copies in my house. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, the original plate, so. But at the end of it, like, uh, I remember really going home that night and thinking, well, how is it going to get better than this, right? It's like, what what campaign am I going to cover that's better? And I'm not making a judgment about the outcome. I want to be really clear, but I'm making a judgment about covering no, something that was so campaign. historic, yeah. right? Like the first African-American. And I spent, you know, I remember thinking weeks in advance about what the lead should be and talking to Jill Abramson, who was the executive editor at the time, as we kind of hashed through every single word at the top of the story. Like, you don't get that many opportunities in this business to write a story like that. Yeah. You know? No, I listen, I identify with that because when I was done with the Obama campaigns, I had to ask myself, is there anything I could do right? that would rival this? And, and you set yourself up for disappointment. Uh, for hanging out, hanging around too long. I mean, we have friends who like did another campaign and maybe shouldn't have. You right. Know? It's like, no, no, you got to yeah. know. You got to know. know. Yeah. But uh, so you decided to come out here. So what happened is without making the story too long and boring. Um, in t- but uh, well, anyway, it's not that boring. So in 2000. <laughs> It's in 2000, when I was finishing up as a New York political reporter, this job opened up, the Los Angeles Bureau Chief opened up. I never even thought about that. And an editor from the desk, the national desk, Jim Roberts was his name, came over and said, would you have any interest in being the national, the Los Angeles Bureau Chief? And I was like, you know, Johnny Apple always said to me, just don't, don't do only politics. Take advantage of the breadth of the New York Times. He said, go to London or do something like that. So I said, let me think about it. And I flew out here. And I spent a couple of days here, and Todd Purdom, who I think you know, was the L.A. bureau chief at the time. And I said, yeah, I want to do this. I want to try something different. So I went back. I said, yeah. Um, I came out here. I started looking for a house. Todd Purdom had an elaborate party for me at his house that the Times paid for that probably cost at least $5,000. And everything was going on. Then I came back, and September 11th happened. And I remember walking around the streets of New York one night and thinking, you know, I love New York. It's in my blood. I know all the politicians. I know the story so well. And I'm thinking, does it make any sense, right? So Howell Raines was the executive editor at the time. And I walked into his office and I said, listen, I'm honored to be the Los Angeles bureau chief of the New York Times. Um, but I'm wondering whether it makes sense for me to be coming to Los Angeles in the midst of this one of the hugest stories of the century, right? And he goes, I was thinking the same thing. And within a day, he had pulled it back. So I stuck around, and um, and it was about a year later, the political job opened up, so that was good, which is a long way. So fast forward to 2010, Richard Leland Burke, Rick Burke, who you know, was yes. a national writer at the time. And he said, I remember, you know, I remember that you almost went to Los Angeles back in 2001. Do you still want to do that? And I went through the same thought. And I thought, you know what? Do I want to spend my whole life just doing politics and nothing else? Do I want to take advantage of something else? Do I want to get out of my comfort zone? And I said, yeah, I do. I want to do it. And that's what made me decide to do it. And do you miss? Uh, oh, yeah. I know you get, you, get into, you get into the campaigns from time to time. From time to time. Do I miss? I definitely. So here's the thing. I, I, I always want to do politics, right? I love politics. 
and I really love what I'm doing out here. It's great. But do I miss politics? Yeah, I love I love it as much as ever. On the other hand, it's the job isn't what it once was, right? Like if I was still, for, for, it's better to go out on your own than to like get the old shove, right? That, <laughs> for all I know, that could have happened a month later, right? Um, so I miss it, but I also know that if I went back, it'd be different, right? There's a lot more people writing about it. Like when I was there, like I was sort of like the, I was probably the last of the ones who were like the single voice of politics in the New York Times. That was that was the most pre prestigious, prestigious job, uh, right? job in, in political reporting. And that's kind of – I'm not sure it's a bad thing that it's passed, but there's more – we have a, lot, a bigger diversity of voices, and more, which is probably fine. There's a lot more platforms, a lot more time. But it's not just, you know, Jonathan Martin is fantastic. He's has a great a job reporter. He's fantastic. But there's other people writing as well. You know, it's like – Yeah. I mean, but what, what you had and what you have is perspective that comes from years and years and years of uh, experience. What did you think – when you were watching the 2016 race unfold, because it's one thing when you're in the middle of it, right? But you, you, you and you were drawn in from time to time. But you were kind of watching it from the outside. Did you see it coming? Um, <clears throat> no, I didn't. But I'm going to make the one caveat which you probably heard me big say before, which is, you know, I I didn't see Trump winning, um, but I saw Hillary Clinton win, which she. Did the, I know this sounds like a Hillary, like Hillary Clinton, but she won the popular vote. I mean, I think the big, the big problem with the way that campaign came out was that everything, everyone was focusing so much on the popular vote. Everyone was focusing so much on the predictive model, models, the upshot and five thirty eight. I'm not; those are five. I'm putting them down, but and I get the statistical thing. But everyone looked at it and said, "Oh, Hillary Clinton has a sixty eight percent chance of winning. Hillary Clinton has a ninety eight percent chance of winning." So everyone who watched us and read us thought. She was going to win, quite logically, and I think it also influenced the way reporters wrote about the race. Yeah, so. which is which is something new. I mean, that's right. that wasn't around when you no. were doing the races that you did, and uh, and nor, nor was it around when I was writing about politics or uh, so much when I was doing uh, the races that I was doing. And it struck me, you know, uh, I think of uh, David Broder. He's uh, he and his wife, Anne, uh, bequeathed money to the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, where they both went. And we had a, an event honoring David, who was, you know, an institution at the Washington Post, a counterpart of you and many other others at, at the Times, because he was there for so long. And he was at the Times at one point. He was, yeah. And he made, and he was famous for going, uh, jumping in a car and driving around America, knocking on doors and interviewing people and it seems like if more of that had gone on in 2016 perhaps there would have been a counterweight and that maybe both reporters and politicians got too reliant on on analytics and too reliant on on polling i think so and it's a feedback loop so reporters are looking at these things and thinking that and they're talking to experts who are saying the same thing and it becomes a feedback loop but i think yeah, I think if you get out, maybe if people. I'm not criticizing anyone. I mean, if they yeah. did really well, but it also that, has to do with budgets. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I think news organizations. Uh, one of the changing elements of the news business is um, is the economics of news are difficult uh, now. So that's a factor. But I do think you know, you and I both. But there's been times when you I've been out. Um, in Iowa or the field and seen something before polling starts to pick it up. It just happens. No, so. I mean, uh, listen, I 
I completely believe that. Yeah. I think it's a huge problem. And uh, one I hope gets remedied as we move forward because a lot was missed in 2016. We'll be right back with Adam Nagurney. You know, you referenced earlier some of the contemporary challenges that Trump has posed. There is this... Um, there is this fake news thing now. Right. A president likes to, and the New York Times has been very much in his crosshairs, as has CNN, as has the Post. Um, when stories are written that he doesn't like or that are un, uh, fla- he views as unflattering or unhelpful, he dismisses them as a fake news. And a fair number of his supporters embrace that. And now we're in this world where... Um, there's a competition over facts. Uh, how much more difficult does that make reporting and covering government and politics? Well, it makes. I think it makes it. I think it makes it. I think it makes it a lot more difficult um, because you know. You know, in the old days, you would write a story. You do everything you would do to make sure you, to make sure it was right, right? And now, and you assume that readers would read you and assume that you were right. And now. You don't, right? Like, so for example, before I came in here, I saw the Washington Post had another, just posted another story about Moore, and there's some more evidence of him having um, uh, some kind of relationships with, I think, a 14 year old girl. And I thought, people, a lot of people are going to read that and think, well, I don't believe that because it's in the Washington Post. And that's a new thing. I don't think that's well, good that for democracy. That was the original response of Roy Moore. Right? It was, right? And that, you know, that's what the president's been pushing. And, you know, that's the whole thing about fake news. And I, I mean, this is the old. Moynihan, it's almost a cliche now. You're entitled to your own facts, but not your own your own opinions, but not your own facts. I think it's really, 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 really bad for society that we don't have this basic, you know, basic um, assembly of facts to work off. We can disagree about stuff, but like people should be able to agree on what what is true, right? You can disagree about you know whether or not. I mean, Moore is probably not the best example to use, but whether or not he had improper relations. But let's just start from there and then figure out whether it's okay. Well, what about the basic facts, even about this? this Russia uh, story where the entire intelligence community agrees that something happened and the president calls it a hoax. Right. That's and, a much better example. You know, yeah. um, I mean, the foundation of democracy is a free press uh, to keep government accountable. Right. Um, so if you lose that, that's a frightening, a frightening prospect. Uh, is it recoverable? Can, can, uh, can we get back to a place where there's a basic agreement on fundamental facts, or 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 are we in to a new world that is going to continue to be exacerbated by social media and the way we can silo ourselves and choose the news outlets that affirm our points of view? I'm not sure we were having this conversation ten years ago that I would know where we ha- that we would have reached this part place today. So I'm afraid I'm reluctant to say that we can't get back to where we were. But I'm not um, confident. I mean, I just think the w- media is so siloed, the 24/7 and the competition and the individual people. And you know, I just think that individual voices out there and the partisan news, the part- deliberately partisan news, and the making up of stuff and the fake news. Uh, I'm not sure, but I think that it makes it more and more important. For mainstream newspapers, and I use that in an old school kind of way, like the Times, like the Post, to like do everything they can to make sure their coverage is as straight and correct and helpful as possible. That's why the ABC mistake 
was so you know, was so damaging. I mean, you have to be. We all make mistakes, right? We do, but we have to be more careful than ever because I just think it's really important that at least some citizens believe the newspapers, newspapers, the media as a sort of source of what is right and what is wrong. We can move from there about what you believe on who you support, but just on what the basic facts are. Right? To their and, credit, ABC moved quickly to they did, discipline yeah, to, the reporter yeah. and to acknowledge the mistake. Yep. but it certainly lend credence to the argument that Trump was trying to make yeah, uh, and gave him gave him an escape valve uh, or a distract valve or distract <laughs> valve yeah maybe a distract valve how's this all impacting on the times um, I think the times is struggling with this every day I mean I think we're doing really well but I mean I think we have to be you know we're we're getting pounded all the time by the president we're being really assertive in our reporting um, the whole dispute about whether or not to use the word lying describing what the president said um, but I just, I mean, I'm going to sound like a booster, but I think the paper's done really well, acquitted itself really well during a really difficult time. And it's been great for business. You know? Has it yeah. been? You no, know, it's been great for subscription. I mean, we, you know, I, I was talking to somebody at the paper, and he was saying, you know, we, we do not and should not look at it this way. But the fact of the matter is— so, Because part of the goal of the president clearly is to try and hurt the Times economically and the other institutions that— uh, are covering him that he doesn't that he's unhappy with CNN, The Post, NBC News. He's gone after all of them, and he's gone right. after them in ways that seem designed to try and hurt them uh, from a business standpoint. Right, and it's had the opposite effect so far. And whether that will, you know, um, digital subscriptions to the New York Times are up, and they're clearly the Trump up, right? They're up for that reason. Now, whether that will continue after the president, you know, after we moved on from this president to something else, I don't know, but I. Now, the, 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 the legendary Gay Talese wrote a book in the 60s called The Kingdom and the Power, which was a history of the New York Times, just a riveting uh, book. You, you are now in, embarked on a ne- the next—it's been 50 years since yeah, that book came yeah. out. You're embarked on the next uh, chapters of that story. Why did you decide to uh, undertake that? I am— um I grew up on that. I loved that book when I read it. I just loved it. I always loved reading about the Times, and I always just thought there was a really great. I mean, there's been a lot of books done about the Times since, but nothing in the spirit of Gay Talese. And it's something I just thought about for a long time, and I kept putting it off. And mostly, um, I'm working at the paper, which makes it complicated. And it's hard when you're at a newspaper to do a job like that. And also, you know, for anyone who's read Gay Talese, who wants to even try to be yeah. Right, One of the really, truly great writers of our, of our century, right? Yeah. Just an unbelievable, you know. And then finally, I kept thinking about it. I decided I talked to my agent about it. And she said, let's do it. So I, um, it's you know, it's a, like I thought about a lot of other books, David, but this was a real work of passion for me. It's like something I really, really, really wanted to do. And I just thought there was a need to do it. And uh, I'll tell you something. When I, after I just got the contract to do it, right? I went and I met with Gay Talese, and I, I don't think I ever met him before. I was Again, I was really nervous, not as nervous as I was when I met Adam Clymer. Um, <laughs> I went to his house, and I knocked on the door, and he opened it up, and he goes, I've been waiting for 15 years or so to write this book. Come on in. And he's been like, whatever oh, really? I can do to help you. It's and really and he's been helpful, huh? He's been really, he's just been such a class act. He's been anything I want. So how do you, how do you as a timesman, as they were called. Now yeah. it's times men and women. Yeah. Uh, but how do you um, approach it, uh, seeing as how you're still the yeah. Los Angeles bureau chief for the New York Times? So the, the, the span of this book starts in 1977, 
kind of random. Gabe's book ended in 68, but this 77 was the year that Abe Rosenthal became executive editor. And it goes through the end of Jill Abramson's tenure, which is about 2012, 2014. And the idea is that after I'm done with the main narrative, I'll come back and write a long epilogue. So for the most part, not completely, for the most part, I'm writing about people who are gone or I don't have to deal with so much, which makes it easier. I don't want to be in a situation – I don't should be in a situation where I'm writing about somebody who I'm dealing with. So that's made it more sort of handleable. And like, so I'm writing – most of my reporting and energies have been about – you know, so far Rosenthal and Frankel and Keller and um, and um, uh, Howell Raines and Jill Abramson. At some point, I'll move on to Dean Beckett. But my hope is that by the time I begin focusing on that, you know, Dean will have moved on. Yeah, Dean uh, being the current uh, yeah, executive exactly. I'm editor sorry. of yeah, the. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, exactly of the you editor, just yeah. named the distinguished but, journalists who have been yeah. editors of the Times. Times has had um, a lot of uh, enormous impact and success over. There's also some. Uh, moments of trial where reporters have uh, been uh, uh, less than uh, what you'd hope plagiarizing Mm -hmm. uh, and misreporting and so on. How much of that are you going to deal with in your book? Um, So there's been a couple of classic examples, obviously Jason Blair being one. The, some of the reporting. Explain the Jason Blair. I'm sorry. Story. Yeah, I'm shorthanding here. That's okay. So Jason mm-hmm. Blair was a, was a, a plagiarizer. He worked for the paper 2001, and it turned out that he was just making up stuff. He wasn't even going out. And he had wrote. We the Times wrote a 7,000 word front page story where they went back and they re-reported everything he did and just laid out everything that he did wrong. It was a for the a devastating moment for the paper. I mean, it was. On one hand, it was really, really kind of... He wrote, these, he wrote compelling narratives that just weren't did. true. It really helps when you're writing a story when you make stuff up. You know? Yes, it's but called, he really they're did. called novels and yeah, stories. Exactly, yeah, exactly, right? And, um, and um, you know, there's some people who said that Jason Blair did more damage to the paper than anyone else. And I think it really created a whole new you know, t- t- uh, chapter in journalism and in the New York Times. Much more fact-checking, much more concern about not getting stuff wrong, much more skepticism. You know, that's a big part of the story, as is... You know Judith Miller, and dis- she was a reporter who wrote about Iraq with some disputed um, um, stories about. But- she became, in certain ways, a vehicle of the gov- for the government narrative right. that turned out not to be true. Right, and she ended up leaving in part because of that. Yeah. Um, so that'll clearly be part of this. I mean, the thing that's so great about the paper is that they're they're brilliant people, reporters and editors, and they're also really flawed people who, for the most part, were trying to do some really good things. But sometimes didn't. And how are you doing the reporting on this? Are you how you you're so just going out and interviewing? And there's two main things I'm doing. One is um, interviewing anyone I can find who's still alive. Done extensive interviews with executive editors, other editors, people who were involved with the paper. But the other thing is archives. Archives are you know they end at a certain point, which I'll tell you about if you're interested. But archives are fantastic. You go back and you can read sort of the memos that people wrote and the notes to each other and the. You know, planning reports and personal letters, and those are those two things are the main elements of it. And a lot of that stuff's really fresh. You know, you uh, you you talk about the the uh, the renewed commitment to fact checking and rigor, rigor uh, but you know, we read that the Times has had to cut layers of editors uh, yeah. from the desk, and uh, which suggests that even though the, there there's a boost in subscriptions and so on. There's still financial pressures there. The Post has the benefit of having the richest man in the world as their publisher, right. which is helpful. Um, but um, how much are you, how concerned are you about the cuts that are being made 
in terms of preventing or or not being uh, preventing the kinds of mistakes that you know you you've spoken about. So I am I understand the strategy behind the cuts. They they are what they're basically doing is cutting layers of editing, right? So they can hire more reporters or the watch more investigative reporters more. I'm going to use this word really advisedly, content producers. I mean, just, mm-hmm. because it also includes people who know how to package stuff digitally. digitally which and, you have to do now, which we didn't have to do. Which we didn't have to do. And, I, you know, they think the Times and the Post does some really brilliant digital stuff. So I get it. Unlike the Post, we can't, well, un, unlike the Post, we can't afford both. Um, so I get the decision. Do I also get the price, the potential price of the decision? Yeah. Do I think it's possible there's going to be more mistakes and stories? That, you know, editing is a great thing. I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm sure you had the same where editors made you want to put a bullet in your head. But ed- I think editing is a great thing. And I, you know, I yeah. miss having that level of editing. But Listen, I was a young man when I was a reporter at the Tribune and I grew up there and um, the 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 environment was so good because there was really experienced people both reporters and editors who were there to help and teach me the craft right and who were there to say you know what you don't have this story yet and that's an important function or to say you know this doesn't strike me as right are you sure about this right and to force you to go back and check your facts before we go you also you this is not your first book you wrote another book called Out for Good, The Struggle to Build a, a Gay Rights Movement in America. You wrote it with Dudley Clinton in, in, in the late 90s. <sighs> and you're, you are gay. Yeah. Um, you, 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 the, span, the, the, the scope of your career, the span of your career, has seen this incredible shift in this country. Are you surprised um, at how quickly... These, thing, these things have changed in the last few years, in the last decade, given the, the history that you've written about before? Yeah, I don't think there's any other um, social movement, civil rights movement, if you want to call it that, which I think we should, where there's been as much change as fast. There's certainly not – that was the case in the African-American community. It's just – it's been startlingly fast. And even with some of the backlash – that you're seeing today, it's just, it's kind of shocking. And you see it in the New York Times newsroom. I mean, I remember when I was like, you know, that 27, 20 year old kid thinking, how, how could there ever be gay people working in the New York Times? And in fact, one of the things I'll write about was that there was a lot of homophobia on the part of the. Did you feel, uh, were you, did you feel inhibited about uh, revealing who you were? By the in- time I got there, it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. By, by the time it was like almost an asset by the time I got there. But like, I have friends who were there back in the 70s and 80s, and that was a really, really difficult thing. So yeah. the world has changed in a really, really dramatic way on that front. It's just yeah. really something. You know, we had a, as a guest on this program, Fred Hochberg, who oh, I know yeah. you know. And Fred talked about his experiences as a young man and how painful they were in both his personal relationship, professionally, and so on. Um, and it struck me that there were probably young people listening who couldn't conceive of that right. you know because right. times have changed so dramatically and 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 for the better right so uh and when is this new york times uh tome <laughs> due it's um to it's due to the publisher the summer after next which i'm hopeful to make well adam, you're listening i'm going to make that <laughs> okay. yeah. yes uh, adam you know this so i'm not uh this is not for purely for the benefit of our 
audience, but uh, you truly are one of the great political reporters that of our time. And I, um, I, as much as I so admire some of the others who were out there covering this last campaign, you know, I emailed you from time to time and said, man, I wish you were out there. So uh, I'm very much, I still enjoy reading your stuff. You're still dabbling in politics out here. I love it. You you saying that makes me feel even better about it. And uh, but um, I hope that you keep a hand in because uh, your perspective is uh, is really really important. I appreciate that, Adam Nagurney. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of the Axe Files, visit cnn.com/podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.